welcome to the sixth episode of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be discussing mothers versus fathers in fiction and Dickens on the page versus Dickens on the screen. So hopefully it should be an interesting one that lots of you can um, contribute to in the comments section afterwards, we hope, because... I feel like we might not know a lot about <laughs> these subjects. Yeah, we're already setting ourselves up to fail. And I think that is, you know, lower expectations from the outset. <laughs> That's the answer. Yeah, exactly. And how are you, Simon? Um, yeah, I'm good. I've had a busy week, but I'm, in, um, I'm enjoying getting up at the crack of dawn to record this podcast on a Saturday. <laughs> and, and by the way, I should say the crack of dawn is like nine. So <laughs> <laughs> dawn cracked some time ago. But... Um, yeah, um, I always want to say what I'm reading at this point. I'm, trying to remember. Oh, I'm just finishing off my first ever Elizabeth Googe, actually. Oh, are you? This is interesting, because this is one of the things I've written down to talk about. Ah. What did um, you read? Well, it's not one of the ones you'd expect. Um, yeah. It's called The Middle Window. Have you read that one? No, but I've heard of it. What's it about? Um, <laughs> well, strangely, <laughs> it's my second reincar- reincarnation romance of the year. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, um, it's, I never thought it was a subgenre that I'd become so so addicted to. Um, yeah, it's it's set in two, it's split in two halves. First, is set in the nineteen thirties when the book was written, and the, and the first half is in seventeen forty five or something like that. Okay. Um, during the Jacob, I'm going to say Jacobite revolution. And that's probably not a thing, but Jacobites were doing something. Right, that's, that's true. Yeah, that is good. good. Cool. Yeah. cool. Um, <laughs> and the the man and woman in each case are the same person, or at least the same spirit, or something. I don't know. Um, right. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. It's um, I enjoyed the first half a lot more. You 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 may know my feelings about historical fiction in general, which we will discuss yeah. in another episode. <laughs> For another time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you reading? Um, I literally yesterday just finished um, The Thirteen Guests by J. Ah. which is one of those British Library crime classics. Um, I, I really, you know, I really enjoyed it, even though, um, well, the I thought when I got to the end, I was like, oh, this was a bit obvious because I could tell this all along. And then there was a sudden last minute. <gasps> a twist. <laughs> the last page, which I was like, oh, that's clever. So I really enjoyed that, actually. I just love them. They're so... Um, they're so period. They're Speech great, aren't they? Um, yeah, and I've got another one lined up to read next, which is the Lake. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's the Lake District Murders. You might. I, have John Bude wrote that one. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've not read that one. I've read a few of their series. I've, um, the Alan Melville ones I really like. He did Quick Curtain and Death of Anton. Oh, okay. They're so funny. Um, I should get those ones next. Yeah, and, and I've got Thirteen Guests, which I'm waiting to read. Uh, I think which, you'll enjoy yeah. it very much. Oh, good. I, I just that series is so beautiful as well as being really, yeah. you know, entertaining. Um, I was going to try and think of a segue for this, but I can't at all. But I just want to talk about the 1924 Club. Well, I was going to say this: I, is the Middle Window a 1924 novel? But you've just said it's 1930, so it can't be. Yeah, it's not. Um, oh. That was actually one that someone lent me, so that's why I'm reading that. <laughs> <laughs> but for, if in case any of you have not seen it, um, the 1924 Club is something that I'm organising with uh, Karen slash Kegsy from Kegsy's Bookish Ramblings, um, where we're asking everyone who wants to, to read one or more books from 1924 uh, in the last couple of weeks of October. And the response has been really great, actually. It's been very um, encouraging. I mean, um, whether that turns into anyone reading anything <laughs> remains to be seen, but I hope it will. And I'm actually listening to my first one for that, which is another murder mystery, and it's by Dennis McHale. Oh, yeah. of Greenery Street fame. Of Greenery Street fame, amongst a small group of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
weirdly, I, I was looking through his list and going, maybe I should read one of his, and came across one called The Majestic Mystery. Um, thought, oh, I'll see if I can find any second-hand copies. And the cheapest second-hand copy I could find was £35. Oh. But weirdly, someone's made an audiobook of it, and it's on Audible, so I'm listening to that instead. And that's free, is it? Well, I set up a free trial to get that. After that, it's quite expensive, so I may cancel after my free trial. But for, <laughs> <laughs> but for that, it's free. <laughs> Oh, and have you got a list of the 1924 books somewhere? So on on my blog I've linked to the Wikipedia page and okay. the Goodreads page, and then I, I suggested maybe 10 or 12 or something. My hope is that people will like, go through their own shelves and find things that I had, would never have thought about, um, particularly if it's you know works in translation or poetry or something that I'm less likely to know about. <laughs> um, well, I still have a look. Yeah, like, scour your shelves, please. Yeah. <laughs> And if all else fails, When We Were Very Young by A.M. Milne is 1924. <laughs> oh, well, perfect. <laughs> cool. Okay. Shall I get started? Let's do it. Discussion, which is, I mean, it's going to be slim pickings at the moment. Because so I really struggled to think of many fathers, actually, um, in fiction that I could recall. I think because a lot of the children's books I read that had mothers and fathers predominantly in them were kind of girly books. Um, as a child and they often just have mothers in them so I was thinking like oh my favorite books when I was a child are Little Women and Railway Children both of which have absent yeah. fathers yeah. and a mother who is holding the fort while the father is gone um, and those really strong kind of feminist figures in the fact that they hold the family together they go to work mm. they you know keep the household running they teach the children how to be moral and good and then you know the father comes back at the end and he hasn't really had much of an input perhaps in their upbringing um which is interesting that is interesting but i'm sure that's not a generic thing <laughs> just literally my experience of reading and then i was thinking also of elizabeth Gouge in the sense that she's very fond of an adoptive father Oh, is she? Yeah, an adoptive father figure, so often an uncle. Um, so the two, well, of the two books of hers I've actually read, this is the theme. So I can see we should line her up for a future podcast. Yeah. Clearly. Um, so I'm thinking about the Little White Horse and um, the other book that I read. Which name uh, is not coming to me? Hang on, <laughs> it's The Runaways. It's been. I don't think that's its original name, but that's the name, the edition I reread that was um, done oh, by yes. Hesperus. That was called some, something in Lynette's, was it before Lynette's? Yes, that's yes. right, yeah, mm. something um, Lynette's, I don't know. <laughs> um, and we made notes this episode, people, we made notes and we still don't know the title. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a more modern one that you all know is, I think, A Wonderful Father is John Ames in Gilead. Yay! <laughs> I hadn't even noted that one down, but that's a brilliant example of a great father. Thanks very much, yeah. <laughs> I was quite pleased with myself. I was like, oh, that's a really good one. <laughs> Tick me, <laughs> Um I should point out, um, this isn't going to be quite our usual, like, which one would we choose, but more a sort of look at which which are treated better in fiction or whether yeah. you get more good mothers or good fathers so so I guess the inclusion there is that <laughs> from from those ones there are a lot of absent parents in children's books aren't there yes and for obvious reasons it gives the children an opportunity to have fun yes or you know in the case of you know Harry Potter to avenge their deaths so yes. <laughs> <laughs> I it can take either path <laughs> but yes things like Swallows and Amazons or the Famous yep. Five or whatever they're always just well we, I've talked about the um 
appalling parenting of the famous five before at this point. <laughs> but yes, the, the, the absence of parentpiguity is a sort of um, idealized version of what a child thinks it would be like to, to yeah. live without parents. Interesting. Hmm. Um, I didn't write down any children's books, actually. I, I was thinking um, more about um, people who write as mothers or fathers. Oh, Because okay. I was thinking there's that whole stream... Um, from Diver of Driven to Lady onwards, and probably before, of semi-autobiographical um, fiction, I guess, or fictional autobiography about uh, what it's like to be a mother, which is usually very self-deprecating. Mm. Um, so there's, there's that one, there's, there's Shirley Jackson's domestic memoirs, there's um, yeah. M for Mother by Marjorie Riddell, or Riddle, um, Please Don't Eat the Daisies by Jean Kerr, that was turned into a, either a film or a TV series or both with Doris Day, which seems <laughs> extraordinary to me, <laughs> but, but sure. And I couldn't think of a fatherly equivalent, although I've not read Man and Boy by Tony Parsons, and that may be what that's about. Have you read it? <laughs> no, I have not. Okay, well, if it is, guys, let us know. But um, there's, yeah, there seems to be this, this thing for... A, a woman talking about the difficulties of being a mother in a funny way that doesn't seem to be reflected in fathers that I can think of. No, I think perhaps there's more modern ones. I know there's a lot of journalists in The Guardian who've written books about that sort of thing. Um, but um, I don't know why I said The Guardian then in a really deprecating way. <laughs> it's the only newspaper I read. Um, but, but I think perhaps... I suppose this might be the case in the earlier part of the 20th century when these people were writing, um, was that I suppose for a woman, being a mother was the main way in which you defined yourself, whereas a man, being a father, was a part of a much bigger life where I suppose the the main identification of that man would be through his work, whereas a woman wouldn't have work so as such. So, you know, her whole identity would be wrapped up in being a mother, and the people reading the books, their whole identities would be wrapped up in being mothers. So sharing that sense of the often ridiculous nature of yeah. looking after children, which I know full well as being a teacher and a <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that kind of that sense of camaraderie is it was ne- is necessary, I suppose, for women and feeling they're quite trapped within the home and they've got nothing else to um, do uh, not in a negative way, but like they then they didn't have the, the opportunity to have a career yeah. and and to have children. So I suppose maybe that's why there's more novels about that or semi autobiographical things about that than from men. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, yes, it is a really good point. Um, they they say that people like to read about them, people like themselves in books. Yeah. My my obsession with 1920s mothers I'm not quite <laughs> up. But at the time, I think yeah, you're right. It was, it was sort of. I guess mimetic reasoning for, for for reading these things and seeing that other people were failing alongside, whereas the men would read, I don't know, <laughs> well, detective with, novels. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's more sort of because when you think about sort of Penguin paperbacks and things that were very popular amongst men, I should imagine it was designed for commuting, really. And I suppose that's um, the difference between men and women's lives then. Certainly, was that you know, men had a much more work-based life and women had a much more home-based life. So the novels that they read reflected that, I guess. Yeah. And when I was trying to think, so that that to me came, was like the sort of, I guess, stereotype, or at least the predominant image of, of mothers in mm. the era that I'm most interested in. Um, and I was trying to think what the equivalent of father was, fathers was. And there seemed to be a lot more 
of the oh bless him he's eccentric sort of father yeah um than there is mother so uh, the, the examples i came up with were um the father and i captured the castle yes um the father in miss hargraves the, the wonderful um cornelius huntley who is this eccentric bookshop owner and i haven't mentioned miss hargraves anywhere near enough in this podcast <laughs> so i had to get that in there <laughs> um did i write anyone else down I, but you know this you know the variety yeah um and it seems like there's this image, particularly maybe between 1920s and 1950s, I guess, of the father who is eccentric and not particularly good father, and everyone thinks this is quite sweet. Whereas if it was a mother, they'd think at the time in these sorts of books, oh, it's quite damaging. Like the mother, in fact, in Guard Your Daughters. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting, isn't it? It's like the it's fine to be a bit of an ineffective father um, and to sort of hide yourself away from your children all day because your work is so important or because, you know, you're doing other things. Um, and for a mother to want to have an independent life or not to be devoted to her children is considered to be, you know, some kind of alien, yeah, evil... Like against problem. nature or something. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it is interesting how that perception comes through. Um, but, and, and you know, certainly in earlier fiction as well, about fathers often just not being there. You know? Yeah, yeah. And mothers being... I mean, nowadays, you know, if you read sort of young adult fiction and things, the fathers are generally never there. Um, because there is this obsession with writing about divorce and separations and relentless depression. Of, <laughs> um, and it is always very much fathers not being around and mothers being this kind of bastion of the home. He's the last one standing to look after the children. Um, and I think there should be more depictions of women finding it hard. And I think actually just think there are some books from the 50s and 60s that I can think of, like... Um, Penelope Mortimer, Daddy's Gone Hunting, that that show a little bit more the reality of being a mother and women being frustrated and feeling trapped and feeling that being a mother actually isn't that great. Um, and I think actually a lot of novels don't want to discuss that side of things. That's really interesting. Um, and if, oh, this the brilliant book that's still ahead of its time that was published in 1924 actually, mm-hmm. um, The Homemaker yeah. by the Canfield Fisher. Where, for those who ha- haven't read it, the um, mother and father essentially swap roles. The mother realizes that she wants a career, and the man realizes that he wants to be a stay-at-home father. Um, I think the, the depiction of a destigmatized stay-at-home father is still ahead of its time. I think the idea of women having jobs obviously is not um, <laughs> alien today, but um, the, the sadness in that one is that he has to pretend to be in a wheelchair, I think, is it? Or yeah. In order for this to be okay with the society around him, because otherwise it's seen as bizarre. But for 1924, it's astonishingly ahead of its time in, in yeah. suggesting that men and women can shake up those roles in the home. Yeah, and it's also interesting that it's considered to be a shameful thing for a mother mm. to actually be like, do you know what, I love my kids, but I'm not great at being with them all the time. And, you know, that shouldn't be something you should have to feel ashamed of saying. But I think even now, today, it's still considered... Sort of, if for a woman to actually admit that she doesn't love being at home with her children all the time, and actually sometimes it's quite boring, um, is considered to be, you know, awful, and you can't say it. And I think there needs to be the fact. I've, I really can't think of any other books like The Homemaker actually that I've heard about or come across. I mean, no. I, I think perhaps there are some more. Um, I remember reading uh, some controversy about a book by a journalist a couple of years ago, a woman who admitted that like she loved her husband more than her children or something. I can't remember her name. Um, <laughs> but like when th- those sorts of books do come out, very rarely there's this huge hue. Everyone's up in arms about it, and 
yeah there is so those prejudices still do exist and I think that is a wonderful book in the sense that it shows actually you know these stereotypes of mother must you know woman must enjoy being with children man must enjoy going to work are completely false and they're society they're socially generated rather than innate so yeah, you go, Dorothy Canfield Fisher. Yeah, I mean, what an amazing pioneer. Yes. <laughs> they pioneered Montessori education, so, you know. What, what didn't she do? I know, exactly. <laughs> um, and I've forgotten to mention so far the one that actually inspired me to think of this topic in the first place, um, Atticus Finch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I should say, I thought this topic quite a while ago and then listen to an old podcast from Jenny and Jenny at Reading the End where they also discuss fathers. I was like, oh, they're going to think I copied them. And then <laughs> thankfully that was so long ago that I've now forgotten everything they said. So I guess <laughs> if I'm copying them, sorry. But yes, you can't mention fathers in fiction without mentioning Atticus because yeah. what a glorious father he is. Yeah, and a wonderful father. And one who, you know, takes on the real role of being a father. But then it's also very interesting that he has Calpurnia to help him, plus the neighbour. The Calpurnia and uh, Mordi, they tend to do the domestic things. That's a good things. point, yeah. And he does the reading the bedtime stories and hugs and things. Yeah, the easy um, bits. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the kind of Calpurnia is very much a mother to them. Right. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. And let's circle back round to um, Gilead because we've not given that enough time. No. <laughs> um, yeah, what makes what makes John Ames such a great father on the page? I think the fact that everything was. Shall I, I just summarise quickly for people mm, who don't know? Yeah. Um, John Ames is a preacher in. I want to say Iowa. Is that right? Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe somewhere in America in the middle. I'm pretty sure it's Iowa. And um, he's in his 70s and he's very unexpectedly uh, found a wife um, after being a widower for many, many, many years, like 50 years or something. Um, and he's lived alone all this time. His wife died with, I think, with their child. So um, mm. when he was in his early 20s, so he's had this awful tragedy. And um, so he marries again and he has a child and they have a child and he's in his 70s and he's been diagnosed with this heart condition which means that he could literally drop dead any moment now he's not he doesn't have long to live is basically the diagnosis and he's sort of traumatized that he's not going to see this child grow up and the child's seven at the time of writing so the book is just this like love letter to his son about life and what he's learned and what he wants to be able to teach him as he grows up but he won't be there to see him grow up and just the love and affection that sort of flows through his words it's just really beautiful and i mean i was just so moved by it and it is stunning yeah it, I mean, I, as soon as i finished i just started reading it again and it's also um really interesting to read from a um christian perspective because it's also very much about the love that god has mm. for his mm. children as a father and that's sort of very much reflected in his his feelings towards his own son and what he's learned about being a father through loving God. And that's, um, but it's not a preachy book at all in any way. Yeah. Well, I was, really, I was thinking, I'm surprised that people who don't have, a, um, a, don't share the Christian faith could, could enjoy reading it, but they do. I should point out lots of people do. Um, and it's definitely not a preachy book. It's just, I think a really brilliant depiction of living with faith, what that's yeah. like. Um, I think we talked about that in a couple, in an earlier podcast. Yeah. Um, I also think it put, it re reveals the, I always use it as a counterexample if people say that women can't write men or men can't mm. write women. No, absolutely. Yes, it's like it's, I think it's the best voice, the most captured voice I've ever read. Like, mm -hmm. And and obviously, um, 
what's her name he wrote it? Marilyn, <laughs> Marilyn Robinson is a, is, is, is a woman. Um, um, so, yeah, it's a great counterexample if anyone ever <laughs> suggests that. Uh, and the first in a trilogy, of, of course, which yeah. um, I've recently been enraged that Leela slash Lila, have one pronounced that, did not make the book a shortlist. I can't believe which it. It was a shock. It was. It's, it's rather embarrassing, I think. It kind of yeah. discredits the prize, in my opinion, because... Well, I mean, the prize has been discredited for me for many years. So. Yeah, well, there's that, yes. I should point out that I've read none of the other books on the <laughs> list, and so I have no idea what I'm talking about. And yet, I feel... <laughs> we can still judge. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. At least we know that we have no right to make these pronouncements. <laughs> uh, um, I thought it was interesting what you said a while ago um, in this conversation about father figures, because I was thinking when we, in discussion, we should try and limit ourselves to people who are actually mothers or fathers, whether biologically or adoptively, because obviously that's the same thing, but um, but not like uncles or cousins or whatever who have the role of father. But um well, because the person who seems to me to have one of the best father figure roles is is Joe Gargery in um, Great Expectations. So it obviously, is a brother-in-law. Um, I don't know whether I want to us to launch into the much that's wider. A, that's talk a of seamless figures. link as well, Simon. There. <laughs> oh gosh, it wasn't even intended, but maybe we should use yeah. it as such. <laughs> have we finished talking about this? <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so. Have we? Have we? We could do. Um, no, I'll, 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 I'll come back to that seamless link later. Okay. <laughs> Let's, let's talk about. <laughs> let's keep talking. Okay, I'll start, instead of going on the tack of father figures, which is the beautiful seamless link, I will ask you which, if you can think of any monsters of like, monstrous mothers or fathers. Oh, not, um, act, not actual monsters, not like Dracula. But, you know. <laughs> um, well, I should say obviously you've got in Harry Potter the horrible adoptive parents. Um, I'm just trying to think of other examples, actually. I mean, they're not there, but will of course be millions, but I'm not <laughs> fine at the moment. Um, oh, no, I can't think of anything. <laughs> well, the only one I could think of, because I, when I started thinking about, oh, that's such a trope of fiction, there'll be hundreds. Um, the only one I could think of off the bat was um, The Vet's Daughter by Barbara Cummins. And even oh, though I can't okay. remember if it's a father or a stepfather, but I think it's father, He he is. It's just sort of um, all the more believably evil because it's not that exaggerated. Mm. He's um, he's a, he's a vet who basically um, is very cruel to his wife and daughter, um, including memorably measuring his wife for her coffin while she's on her deathbed before she's died, which seems to be pretty pretty unkind. But um, besides him and. No, no, I was thinking of Mr. Ramsey into the lighthouse, but he's not particularly monstrous, I guess. No. He's just, just a bad father. Yeah. <laughs> um, are all the monsters the sort of, you know, headmasters of boarding schools type yeah. variety of person, or, or the, or the Dursleys um, or whatever? think as well about, um, I don't know if you call them monstrous, but certainly you could think about some of the mothers in um, novels um, such as, I'm just trying to think, um, Rachel Ferguson, um, the book about where she, her mother's sort of forcing her to marry someone, and I can't remember the name of the book. Oh, a last poor lady. But, yes. Yeah. Um, there's there's those sorts of books where they don't think the women. There's also one by um, uh, oh, E. M. Delafield that. Oh, thank heaven, fasting. Yes, yeah. where the um the mothers are very intent on. I think their reasons are are, are good in the sense mm. that they know that. 
obviously with having a, a daughter in the, the 19th century and you have to get married otherwise you're not going to have a life for yourself but mm. the way in which they kind of quite happily will marry their daughters off to people who you know are 20 years older than them are obviously not going to make them happy you know it's that that kind of thing really disturbs me because I think well there's no real ability there to see that these women these daughters aren't going to be happy especially when they haven't had happy marriages themselves the mothers mm, mm. and they will sign their kids up for the, exactly the same experience and I just think that's kind of monstrous but at the same time understandable because of the social expectations um and I suppose we could also talk about um mothers in um Jane Austen actually just to the sure, last yeah. time um <laughs> You know, a lot of people say that Miss, Mrs. Bennett is a bit of a monster. You know, she's embarrassing. She's useless. But again, as we said last time, you know, she's just doing what she's got to do, really. I mean, she yeah. is effective. She is. She does have clearly have favourites um, amongst her daughters. You know, she openly says, "Well, you know, you're a lot. You know, you're a lot prettier than your sister." And <laughs> just don't say that to your kids. Um, how to install? You know complete and utter emotional turmoil in your children um but again these are very much mothers of their time who are pushed by social expectations to make their children do things that and she's um, definitely not negligent is she <laughs> she is very involved a little bit too involved I think. i'm just um looking through books that i've read i'm just trying to think of other things um quite actually an interesting one is um why does I guess I see Jane Eyre, the depiction of how um, Mr. Rochester was pushed and forced into marrying, um, well, if you believe his version of events, <laughs> um, into marrying um, Bertha by, you know, her stepfather, who was a liar, who kind of, you know, wanted to get money and all the rest of it. Um, so that's kind of an evil stepfather there who basically yeah. sells his, his stepdaughter for money. Um, there must be loads of stories like that, but I can't think of any more. So, yeah. so what conclusions are we coming to? Who comes off worse in fiction? <laughs> I think fathers do, in the sense that they are often just not really depicted much at all. And when they are depicted, certainly in early novels, sort of if we go 1950s and, before, and um, earlier, they're just, they're just not there. Yeah, it's true. Um, for, for the majority of cases, maybe. Um, I can't decide because I definitely agree with that, but I also feel like mothers have a harder time of it in fiction mm. and possibly in real life um, about um, being judged morally for their parenting. Um, people are much keener to say this mother is negligent or in, in novels or this or so, um, you know, mothers who aren't doing their duty properly in novels, um, yeah. duty in inverted commas. Um, than fathers. At the same time, there's, there's the the thing I started off the conversation saying about a lot more empathy for mothers in fiction and in fictionalized autobiography than than fathers. If I was a father in the 1930s and was hoping to find some information for, or like some some fictional character to to take alongside me on that <laughs> for advice, um, yeah. I find it a lot harder to find someone. So essentially, I don't know what, which one I'm picking. I'm going to say fathers as well, just to make things easier. <laughs> yeah, I think you know there is. You're a bit damned if you do and damned if you don't as a as a mother in fiction. Yes. You know? Yes. So it's very it's difficult to, um, yeah. I think when you read women in fiction, they're much more complex and judgmental depictions, whereas mm, mm. fathers are just kind of oh, oh well, you know, mm. he just sits in his study all day and he'll come down <laughs> late. <laughs> 
But I think that's actually quite detrimental to men because yeah, where do you, oh, yeah. where do men go to for good depictions of fatherhood? You know, so. They just got Atticus and John. Yeah. <laughs> those are the two. <laughs> we've read all of the books and we've found those two. <laughs> Oh so once again, I'm sure we've shown our general ignorance, and I'm sh- we'd be very happy to hear about other books that we have not mentioned that probably were really obvious. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> um, I mean, do you know, Rachel? I was just thinking. Um, I, don't this, I don't know if this was a segue or not, but Joe Gargery in Great Expectations. Uh, yeah, that's such a great seamless link, Simon. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so yeah, Dickens on on paper versus. On screen, I think we probably already know which one we're going to... Well, I know which one I'm going to pick for already, but let's discuss it nonetheless. Um, would you be thinking of uh, perhaps Great Expectations? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, although, actually, more broadly, my, I've said this for my blog, I think, um, the, dis- the big distinction, I think, between Dickens on the page and Dickens on screen, um, for me, is that on screen, it's, it tends to be quite miserable. It tends to be about social ills. Um, on, in books, although that's there, I just find them so funny. That's what I take mostly from Dickens, his humour. And I don't think it... I've never seen an adaptation of his work that gets the humour across. No, I always feel like when they do Dickens adaptations, it's like the cinematographer's wet dream, if you like, to be like, yes, I finally get to go to a marsh yes. to, like misty scenes and then they crack out the I don't know where they go to film Victorian London but there must be a place where it's just <laughs> somewhere and everywhere uses it but it's like that it's kind probably of Glasgow or something slums and they just love it and I think they really like to to bring out those settings which are obviously very powerful and um, really interesting you know that shows the underbelly of Victorian society but yeah I think they do lose a bit on characterization and there are um particular characters that the screen seems to favor for example you know mrs havisham oh yeah yeah it's of course a very cinematographic is that what i want um that scene with the wedding table exactly so there are scenes in dickens that lend themselves wonderfully to being filmed but then his novels are so bloated and so full of dialogue you can't possibly get all of that onto the screen so i agree with you actually the humor and the um, so many just throwaway lines that you read and think, oh, that's so funny and so true. You don't get on on the screen, so you miss a lot. But you get that wonderful sense of atmosphere that perhaps you don't feel as much when you're reading. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, although his, I think as an atmospheric writer, he's also right up there. Um, and it's not, and the dialogue is brilliant, and they can get some of that across. But the narrative as well is just the way that he's uh, the humour he puts into. Um, I guess a sort of I don't know exaggeration mixed with like toties <laughs> in yeah. his narrative where he he's um, builds up characters just to sort of undermine them, yeah. all that sort of thing you don't you don't get you don't just get Miss Havisham like staring wanly at um, you know a cobwebby candlestick or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, I didn't did I see the film? I can't remember. I, saw, I certainly saw the TV adaptation of Great Expectations that was on at Christmas a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just really annoyed me <laughs> because it was not funny at all. And it, it was, yeah, there was lots of scenes of marshland. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, all the humour had gone. And I, I, I have seen the David Lean film as well, but I can't remember much about it. I can't remember if that gets any of the humour across, but from what I can remember of it, I doubt it. <laughs> I think it's more like <laughs> Magwitch shaking his chains in a graveyard, which is a, you know, a great scene and very... Um, yeah very atmospheric very very um 
Cinema, yes, I need to stop trying to say that word. Cinema, <laughs> cinemagraphically, cinematography, I don't know. Anyway, filmically, it's very, <laughs> very um, well done. But that's, that sentence was not worth getting to the end of. <laughs> well done, David Lean. I think you're quite a good director. <laughs> um, what other adaptations have you seen of Dickens? I don't know if I've seen any others. I was <laughs> like, I must have seen something. Oh, I've seen A Christmas Carol, obviously. Um, Is that with, with or without Muppets? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a Muppets Christmas Carol, and people are always outraged at this. Do you know what? You can't beat a Muppets Christmas Carol. It's, you know, <laughs> you? It's, it's funny. It tells the story, and, you know, it brings children to, sh- to Shakespeare. I was going to say. <laughs> Oh, I saw a Shakespeare play last night. That's my excuse. Um, oh, was, oh, was it? What did you see? Measure, measure. How was it? <laughs> Do you know what? It was all right. There were sex dolls all over the stage, uh, which was interesting. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the characters had to wade through. Um, I don't it, remember those in the in the, in the play, but I'm sure. That... <laughs> no, well, I mean, it was all very you know purposeful. I was like, oh, yeah, I can see what's what, what you're trying to do here. I mean, it was a bit um, self-conscious, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but enjoyable nonetheless. Not my favourite of Shakespeare's plays, but you know it was good. Yeah. Down with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> Shakespeare, we also think you're quite a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to go on that limb controversially. <laughs> we'll stand test of time. <laughs> oh dear. Um, I'm just trying to think of some others. I know they had that big Bleak House adaptation a few years ago, but I didn't watch it because I have never read Bleak House. I was supposed to at university and I slept through that lecture so I <laughs> ditto for me for all of you <laughs> in fact um yeah so I, was, I thought I thought oh, I'll just quickly read it and then I'll watch it you know fast forward six years or whatever it's been <laughs> yet to start it <laughs> it's just so long but I've got the dvd waiting for me when I have read it okay <laughs> I think we'll have moved on to some new form of technology by then yeah I won't be able to use it. I tried to use a DVD yesterday in my friend's computer and it would not start <laughs> we just could not look at it in the end despite holding the DVD we just had to google it and watch it online. <laughs> um, legally probably I mean it wasn't but I had the DVD in my hand I felt like that atoned for it <laughs> I thought these are two quite capable people young people who can't work out how to work technology Oh dear. Um, I've never seen Oliver, the film either, musical either. So. Yeah, I don't really think you're missing out on much, to be honest. I've also not read Oliver Twist, but I imagine it's not particularly um, lifelike. No, I, mean, I have, I do like Oliver Twist, I think, but my favourite Dickens is our mutual friend. That's my favourite too. Oh. Uh, um, which I don't remember. Has that been adapted recently? Not recently, it, or... no. I think it was a few years ago, but I haven't seen it. I've not seen that. I think that would be very difficult to adapt, partly because there are so many characters. So many so, characters. Um, and Little crippled Jenny, I mean. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, who's the guy who's only got one leg or one arm or something? <laughs> I can't remember. There's just so many of them. But it's, it's very um, atmospheric and entertaining. I really enjoyed that one. Um, but I, you know, I have to admit now, I'm not a huge Dickens fan. So, oh, are you not? No, I'm not. Do you know what? There's there's better Victorian writers, I feel, and also because um, I know this is sacrilege to say this, but um, because he was paid per word, I just find his books to be overly wordy, and there's no real thoughts sometimes. I think into style, it's just like blur. Rachel, so, I know. Rachel. I know. 
but it's just how I feel, Simon. <laughs> when I read them, I just think you really could have just cut half of this, and you would have got a much more um, streamlined and more effective oh, story. But no, it's uh, this is where we come to blows. Well, the thing is, it's just there's so much going on. Sometimes I feel like there's no centrality to them. I think that's what makes Dickens, Dickens, to my view, makes him so great is that he's just full of tangents. He just, if it was streamlined, it might, the story would be about 20 pages long. He just, <laughs> what makes him a writer is that his sort of garrulousness and his, like, filling every sentence with twice as many words as it needs to have. But in, in a way that I think is incredibly thought through and, like, brilliantly, his syntax is just a masterclass, but, um, <laughs> but we can agree to disagree on this oh, I just, You know, I don't like bloated writing. I'm very much a pared-down sort of person. I like stuff that's very clean and very kind of poetic in its style. And I don't... Do you read any Victorians? Do you think... <laughs> no, I do. Um, <laughs> Who fits that bill? <laughs> but it's, well, a fair point. Um, <laughs> but there are... I just feel that... Um, I mean, I would rather read a sensation novel than, I mean, and some might argue that actually, you know, Dickens is a sensation writer in many ways. Um, but I, I prefer Wilkie Collins to Charles Dickens, I have to say. And I should say, dear audience, that um, Rachel did suggest we do Dickens versus Wilkie Collins, and I shamefacedly say that I'd not read any Wilkie Collins, <laughs> so <laughs> we could not do that. That's yes, maybe for exactly. a future one. Um, so I think that I and you know seamless link here again. They were very good friends, Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens. Um, and uh, they were they good fathers? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I doubt it. Well, I think Charles Dickens was very affectionate, wasn't he? He was terrible um, to his wife, wasn't he? Yes, but then yeah. abandoned her for his lover. Um, yeah. Wilkie Collins, I think, was a very devoted husband, but I can't remember if he had any children or not. He had um, he had a lot of health issues. I'm not sure if he did, um, and he died quite young, I think, as well. I want to. I mean, I want to say he had syphilis, but I, that could <laughs> I definitely had some. We can assume if he had syphilis, he probably wasn't the most attentive husband. <laughs> I mean, I could have made that up completely, but I know he had some kind of. Um, <laughs> You can't be sued for defamation for a dead person, can you? <laughs> I mean, he is dead, so, you know, it's fine. But he de he definitely had some kind of issue with, san like, sanity, but it was to do with, like, um, it wasn't, like, depression. It was, like, a there was, like, a disease involved. I don't know what it was. I'm just completely making stuff up now. Um, but I, <laughs> Which I, other Victorian writers' names can we slur? <laughs> <laughs> the Brontes were murderers. <laughs> He was actually Jack the Ripper. <laughs> oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Always amuses me of Jack the Ripper that they always have to find someone famous who might have been it. They're always yeah, like, well, yeah. maybe it was you know, Lord such and such, or like maybe it was just some random guy. <laughs> he was a bit crazy. Um, but it was probably Wilkie Collins. I think we can put that up. <laughs> yeah, and I think that Wilkie Collins. I mean, I'm a bit disappointed, really. I'm just going off on my own Wilkie Collins tangent now. But more <laughs> film or TV adaptations haven't been made of his books because I know they've done The Woman in White, but there were so many like amazing, like, they're ridiculous, like, absolutely ridiculous stories, but they would film so well. Actually, you think that's the sort of thing they would turn to because, you know, it's basically Poirot or something, isn't it? <laughs> but, yeah. but in a, in a different but era. Darker. Yeah, and, and know, TV loves that stuff. What annoys me with Charles Dickens adaptations as well is that they keep redoing the same ones. It's yes. Like, do a different one. Exactly, and um, I mean, I know they do, they do all of Austin, but it's always just like another Austin adaptation. And obviously I love some Austin adaptations, we talked about that before, but um, I just think there are so many novels from, I don't know, later, even from, from any time really, up until 
now <laughs> that have not been adapted um, that would make great attention. It was a bit, it was encouraging. We had the go between recently, which I yeah. haven't seen yet. Actually. I didn't see it, but no, I will. Um, yeah, and we've had. I'm sure, I'm sure there was a little vogue a while ago for like 1920s and 30s adaptations, which gave me hope that they would start digging around for for lesser done things. So perhaps that's already started, like looking further afield rather than just another Dickens, another Austen. I think, but they sort of rely on people on these. Like people have read these two books, so um, you know everyone's read Great Expectations or heard of Great Expectations. Everyone's read Pride and Prejudice or heard about it. So we'll just keep doing it, and people, you know, will keep watching it. But actually, you know, I think people are better read than these TV people assume. And or you know, even if they're not, it would be good to introduce people to texts that, or stories that they're not familiar with. Yeah, and people. And was, was it South Riding that was recently in the like bestseller yeah, charts when they adapted that? Um, which again, I didn't see. But, no, but, it's um, really good, and I cried like a baby reading that book. It's just so beautiful. I've not read it, which is oh appalling. Simon, you would absolutely love it. It's so lovely and so moving, and just you know, frustrating because it's so true about how hard life is, but also wonderful about hope. And it's just oh, I just could cry. See, <laughs> so don't mind it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was actually taken to task recently by someone online in a very sweet way, though joking. But um, actually, you know, it was in person. It was someone I know online, but I met in person <laughs> about my not having read any Winifred Holtby except I have read her biography of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> oddly, yeah. um, but a book I will be reading is The Crowded Street quite recently because guess what year that was published in? 1924. It was 1924. Oh, <laughs> so, and I've yes. actually read that, so I feel like I can tick a box here. Oh, there you go, perfect. <laughs> Um, I'm making all these promises about books I'm going to read and I probably will not finish any of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, so I think we agree that we would like TV auditions uh, to be more experimental in yeah. what they what they do. Um, what would you like to see adapted that hasn't been adapted? What, in general? Or just particular books that you think um, should be adapted other than the Wilkie Collins? Um... Well, I would like. Do you know what I would love? A TV version of Diary of a Provincial Lady. Ah, yay! <laughs> I think that would be amazing. I think that would like be a, great. Like a six-part six series or something. Um, also, I think Mrs. Miniver would make a great series. Yes, um, obviously, this is a brilliant film, but um, there could be one that's actually something like the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Rather than a patriotic um, exercise. <laughs> But it's, you know, those sorts of diary books, I think, would make really fun TV adaptations because you have the village life, you have these other hilarious characters that come in and obviously they'd have to extend parts and things. But I think that could be really interesting. There was a very good Radio 4 dramatisation of um, Diary of a Provincial Lady. Oh, was it? Yeah, it had a Melda Staunton as as Provincial Lady and she was brilliant. Um, And that, yes, it was dramatised rather than just reading it, which was interesting because obviously... It's a diary. You think you think it would lend itself to a, a just a narrator, but um, it, it worked very well. Oh. And I, I, I got the cassette and used to listen to it a lot. I think it's no longer available, but um, okay. it's also where I first encountered Mel Staunton. So oh. <laughs> whenever she's, what I always think of her for. Um, I would love to see Miss Hargraves <laughs> oh. <laughs> something. I think Maggie Smith would be the best Miss Hargraves imaginable, um, but. Since that's not likely to happen, I think We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson would be a brilliant 
Oh, yeah. Film that's... or TV series. Absolutely. Um, probably film. Because they've done The Haunting of Hill House, haven't they? That awful. Um... Yes, twice, in fact. Mm. Um, which I've, I've not seen. I can't cope with horror films. No. That would be my worry if they did do it. They might horror it up a bit because neither of them are scary books. They're just they're quite gothic y books. Yeah. But, um, but the film, The Haunting, I assume, is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't cope with those sorts of things. <laughs> um, but as a psychological sort of study, I think We Boys Live in the Castle would make a brilliant film and I think in fact was being filmed at some point ages ago or no maybe not even ages ago maybe like a decade ago but um for some reason stall didn't happen oh that's true um other things I'm just trying to think of something else I would like I would like to see actually Gilead filmed as well do you think that would be possible because it's I think so with the right you'd have to choose the right actors though it would have to be. I think, yeah, a lot of it is inward, but I think you could do it. I'd love to see them try, certainly. Mm. Um, oddly, I think maybe Leela, I'm going to stick with Leela, um, might be a book that would be better to film, even though I don't like it as much. Um, no, I like it a lot. I, I didn't like it as much as the other two, I have to say. So I still think it's brilliant, but it, it does seem maybe with all, especially all the drama with her childhood, that mm. would be very filmic. Mm. Yes. Um, then there are some books that I love, like I, I think all of Virginia Woolf that I would not want to see filmed. I know they have done. Mm. No, I don't. Think way, I don't. She's a poet. She doesn't need to be filmed. Exactly. It's all about the writing. Mm-hmm. It's just not enough there for. Because it's all about introspection as well, isn't it? Or not? Yeah. All, but a lot, of, and you can't just watch someone sit in a chair and. Think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, but it'd be very <laughs> A radio play, it'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think we've we've um, we've come up with some great ideas. So I think we're in danger yeah. of just listing hundreds of books now, and I need to type them all out for the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we'd love to know which books you think would be um, be right. great to adapt, and which adaptations you really love as well. Mm. Um, and to come back to, to your book's decision, do we prefer Dickens on the page or Dickens on the screen? What are you going to go with? Um, oh, I'd perhaps say probably say page, just because I think the screen doesn't quite capture the the humour, which is there, which I will admit it is funny. Yeah, there's just a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't have the slightest hesitation in saying the book because I love the books and I've never particularly enjoyed the films. That so. was an easy one. <laughs> Now, for next time, we have, of course, not planned what we're doing. Although, thank you very much, David, for sending suggestions. He obviously said by Twitter. I've not told you that yet, Rachel, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll look at those for what we might do. Um, something that we had thought we'd do is um, I Catch the Castle versus oh, yeah. Guard Your Daughters. Um, I Catch the Castle by David Smith and Guard Your Daughters by Diana Tutton. But in order to give us both and anyone listening time to read them or reread them, um, we've both read them, but we want to reread. Um, we're going to say that's be the episode after next. So it'll be episode eight, which will hopefully be in about a month's time. Yeah. So um, yeah, go and get those if you'd like to join in. Yeah, please do. Like, join in from home. We could along or something. That'd be fun. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? I think I've made. Yeah. Um, sure. And if you if you think of your opinions in advance and email them to us, we might even feature you. <laughs> I mean, we definitely would. We would feature anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You can. You can email me at simonthomasoxford.gmail.com if you have any um, any contributions you'd like to make. Fantastic. Cool. Um, 
Great. So that was a fun discussion, and yeah. and uh, we were anxious that we would not be able to fill the time, and we definitely have. Because <laughs> we just ramble on. <laughs> yes, we love a ramble. <laughs> um, thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>